Hello, I'm Matt Gibbard and welcome to another episode of the Modern House podcast. The idea behind this podcast is to highlight the importance of thoughtful design within the home. Thinking about how sunlight moves through a space, using tactile natural materials and surrounding yourself with personal objects. These are some of the things that can enrich your life and improve your well-being. Each guest is asked to pick their three favourite houses from anywhere in the world, Desert Island Discs style, and they describe how these spaces make them feel and why they have an important meaning for them. Today, I'm really pleased to welcome Ross Bailey, a frighteningly young and talented entrepreneur whose company Appear Here provides pop-up shops, markets and retail spaces for small startups and big brands across the world. Happy listening. Ross, welcome to the podcast. Really good to see you. Um, you've built up an amazing business, I think, with Appear here. Um, for those listeners who don't know about the company, could you just explain a little bit about what you do? Yeah, thank you for having me, Matt. So Appear here is essentially like Airbnb, but for retail. So we, on one side, we have thousands of beautiful stores and spaces in cities across the world. And on the other side, we have hundreds of thousands of brands, entrepreneurs, creatives, essentially to us, anyone who has an idea that's looking to space to make it happen. And, and really, our mission at Appear is to help anyone, you know, whoever they might be, bring their ideas to life. And, and you know, we very much exist to empower and, and help entrepreneurs to exist. And how many do you employ and, and, and where are you based mainly? So we're based in London. Um, we were just before the crisis, we were just over 100 people. You know, we've had to make some tough decisions in the in the short term, but we've got offices in London, Paris, and New York. Okay, and... global. You've gone global. Yeah. Because so, when when you and I first met a number of years ago, I think you were just in London at that point. You probably hadn't been going for that long, but I remember thinking how incredibly fresh faced you were, and you still are, by the way, uh, and brimming with yeah. brimming with youthful vigor. I mean, how old were you when you set up a pier? I think I was. 22 21 22 i mean that's amazing now i'm just turned 28 so there's but yeah i've, I've got gray hairs <laughs> a lot of gray hairs so so how does that come about i'm interested to know i mean have, have you always had that entrepreneurial spirit inside you was it there when you were growing up yeah do you know what i mean i i don't know but i always saw it a little bit like a game so the game was just <laughs> you know i wanted to get lots of friends involved and we'd always be doing a project you know my parents joke that they'd like you know come home and we'd have 10 dogs uh, and we didn't own a dog but it was because we were then you know walking every neighbor's dog and I had all my mates running around you know knocking on doors trying to get these dogs to walk um, or I used to DJ I mean literally I used to DJ when I was about 12 13 and it became a bit of a gimmicky thing where you know if it was your 50th wedding anniversary or your 50th birthday having some yeah, twelve-year-old, thirteen-year-old kid DJing was quite cool, yeah. or, or or at least something interesting. And then me and my mates started hiring out nightclubs, and we'd book them on a Wednesday night when it would be quiet, and we'd do it for under eighteen nights, and order in bottles of non-alcoholic champagne, and put sparklers on the top, and thought that we were a West London club for adults. <laughs> um, so there was always something going on, but I, I never saw it as business or really a, a money-making thing it was always about like getting friends involved and could next week we make more than we made the week before and I'm really just you know playing and I think that I'm someone that just finds it very hard to sit still get bored very quickly and I think that to me business and 
I guess that entrepreneurial activity felt like it was always just something that you can channel energy into. And it always felt, which is a complete lie, because you, you know, naturally to do anything, I think you've got to be very committed. But it always felt that you could go from one industry to the other. And, you know, whether it was design or technology or art or fashion, there were so many different areas I was interested in. And I think as a young person growing up, it was always like, God, what am I going to pick? And that was the dilemma. And always this idea of, where's there something that's wrong that you're like, well, why is it done that way? And could we do it differently? And that was the bit that excited me more than the idea of it being a business, so to speak. Where did you grow up? Was it in London? I grew up just outside of London near Buckinghamshire. How did you get the idea for Appear here? And and how did you get it off the ground in the first place? To me, it wasn't like a definite moment. But when you look back, you can see how, you know, the dots sort of connect. You know, my parents are from very sort of humble beginnings and um, they live in a little town uh, and they met in a hairdresser's, this little tiny shop on a small little local high street. My mum was, I think she was 21 and my dad got a job there at 18 because he spotted my mum in the window (laughs) and went home and told my nan that he'd seen the most beautiful woman in his life and had fallen in love. So he got a Saturday job and three or four years later, he managed to convince her to marry him. And then uh, by 25, they took over this little tiny shop and it became their own hair salon. And they're both now hairdressers and and they've stayed in that shop working next to each other every day. And, you know, they're now in their 60s. My dad's from an East London council estate. My mum's from um, the middle of the countryside in Jamaica. And I think you realise how this shop, this one little space was much more than somewhere that people went to get their hair cut. But it was it was everything to them. You know, it's where they fell in love. It's their journey. It's what allowed them to buy a house, send me to school. And, you know, you realise that, especially in these times, you, you see that every store is someone's livelihood, right? It's a lot more. So I think there was that. Um, I left school at 16, moved to London um, and was obsessed with the idea of technology and what was happening in, in that space. And then I met a guy at an advertising school that I went to for six months. This amazing ad school called the School of Communication Arts and amazing creatives like Graham Fink and people like Sir John Hegarty and all of these people went there and were involved with it. And the dean sent me a challenge where he said, you've got to come up with three ideas before breakfast. Hmm. So, you know, it sounds fun, but by day three or four, you've literally exhausted (laughs) every bit of your imagination. So a really interesting thing starts to happen that you start walking around and you start noticing everything, whether it's, you know, looking up and looking at the architecture, whether it's looking at someone crossing the street and wondering, you know, could you do something that helps a someone cross the road properly or seeing someone struggling with their shopping list. You just start to look at all these problems and go, let's come up with random ideas because I want to get out of bed in the morning. And I've got a list literally on my phone from 2011, 2012, around that time. It's just this long list of terrible ideas. And one of them says marketplace for empty shops. And around that time you had vacancy rates, one of the highest they'd been. You were just coming out of the impact of the, 2008 recession you were seeing a lot of vacancies a lot of big retailers going um you were seeing airbnb just taking off Mm. um and i think that you know that was just an idea that must have come to me that day Mm. but then months later i was still thinking about it whereas all the others by the end of the day you've forgotten and then look long answer to your simple question but in the summer of 2012 i rented a shop for the queen's diamond jubilee Mm -hmm. and i designed these t-shirts of the queen with a David Bowie stripe for her face and called them Lizzie Stardust. 
And I took the shot for a week, you know, it was that huge national moment. And my best mate did it with me. And, and we, um, you know, we'd set up an online store on Shopify and it was super easy and suddenly you could sell everywhere. But I really wanted to do a store because I wanted to be in it. I wanted to be on the street, in it with everyone. And then getting this shop was a nightmare. <laughs> and second of all, I had this huge naivety that I assumed you could book a shop for a week. I didn't know you had to sign a five, 10 year lease and, you know, you had to put down a year's worth of rent up front if you were a new business and there was all this friction. And suddenly I realized that, you know, the way that you rent a shop had been set up for businesses of a certain scale. And um, what if we could make that easier? And this shop, you know, was a huge success. We had hundreds of people queued outside. We made more money in this store than we did online. Actually, as the store did better, our online sales grew. So back then there was this idea of was online going to kill the high street and vice versa and not really this view of the two coming together in this omni-channel view that I think has come out now. And, you know, I started to believe in that a lot and go, well, it's because we've created this experience that people now care who we are. Mm. Um, and I guess it was that experience of how hard it was and how important it was to our own idea that I then went, do you know what? I'm going to commit to this idea and I'm going to launch a peer here. A year and a half later, I launched it. It was 2014. Um, managed to convince some investors after meeting hundreds of them that told me no to give me a little bit of seed funding. And then in that time, I think we've raised about 30 or so million. We've opened up in different cities and and it really took off from that, yeah, first little shop. But it's always funny because I think that people think about these things as some sort of genius or brainwave mm. moment that you have. And actually, I think as you look back, you go from realising the importance of the store and from my parents and it meaning something to me to go into that ad school and be doing the three days a week to having my own experience. It was sort of all those dots that connected mm. that then a few years later made me go, I'm going to do this idea. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. So, I mean, I've obviously got to ask you, what does this COVID-19 pandemic mean for, you know, commercial real estate? I mean, it's obviously very awful for a lot of people and a lot of people in retail are losing their jobs. But in the long run, mm. is it actually an opportunity for the identical British high street that we all identify with or understand? But it seems a bit backwards to diversify a little bit. Matt, I think it's been horrible. I think it's been horrendous. Um, for us, you know, as a business, we've doubled every year we had an amazing march and then suddenly in april we had to essentially shut everything down so you know i know what it feels like to suddenly have everything go in many ways to zero have to make the tough decision that had to be made to sort of survive um you know people at the beginning of this crisis are like oh you know a crisis is a uh, opportunity and it's a window of opportunity i mean everyone that said it to me i could have kicked back in <laughs> april but but do you know what i really believe that it is and, and right now as things have progressed and you know luckily we made decisions we raised some more money we're in a good position now as a company to see this through and we're very optimistic and we're optimistic because you're having an acceleration of what needed to happen you're seeing prices get to places where they're affordable and places like new york city i mean really over the last few years were lacking any soul any creativity because prices were sky high and there was huge vacancy and it was very hard to make a real impact. And, and right now you're seeing those prices massively um, decrease. You're seeing that in the centre of town in London. We're seeing this renaissance of the local high street. Um, and look, this isn't a new thing. For about 18 to 24 months before COVID, our data was showing us that we were seeing a massive drive anyway to neighbourhoods. And, and, you know, if you think about your own weekend, I used to go to central London at the weekends or go to Soho or places like that every weekend. And now maybe once every four or five weeks and the rest of the time, mm. you know, I live in Hackney and I, I 
you know, mixed between a few of the streets around here. Mm. And I think that a lot of people have acted that way. And that's why you've seen, whether it's Peckham or different areas where you're seeing this real, these real like local neighborhoods that have sprung up um, and, and, and that were becoming very sort of exciting before this. Because of COVID, it's just accelerated. Mm. Uh, and, and we're seeing that actually in some areas, the independent brands are doing better. We're seeing consistently wherever it is that the higher propensity of independent stores, the better the street uh, and the better the footfall and the more relevancy. So I think that what you're going to see is you're seeing the big retail disappear. You're seeing the retail that was on its last legs that should have disappeared anyway. That was about how do you take a shop, fill it with as much product and sell stuff as quickly as possible. That is disappearing and it's moving online. And do you know what? That wasn't that much of an enjoyable shopping experience anyway. It was about convenience. And yeah, Amazon's more convenient, brilliant. But what you're seeing on the other side is a rise of the independent bookstore, is queues outside the butchers, is a pottery store, a ceramic store, whatever it is. Because what people also need when you've got access to everything is editorial and selection and someone's taste. And you also need a place to gather and I think what's interesting in like with the surf shop or the skate shop or the bike shop is that you turn up not because you just need to buy something but you want the person's expertise and you also want to sit there with people you know that are like you and you look at the rise of streetwear coming into this and you look at kids hanging out in a store like listening to music and they're there because they're with people where they suddenly feel like they belong and I feel like during this pandemic, I think we've all realized, or I've certainly realized, not only an appreciation for the entrepreneur and the person behind that local restaurant that I loved, or, you know, I never realized the joy I got from someone serving me a coffee and sitting outside and people watching. Uh, I took it all for granted. But it is the joy that, that human interaction gives us and how much we want to be out there. And I think that now more than ever, I realize that, you know, sitting doing Zoom calls doesn't energize me and it's boring, right? And, you know, there's amazing research also coming out talking about how our brains are wired to physicality and locations. So I think there's something in that and, and that makes me bullish, optimistic about the future. And, you know, it's the first time I'm sitting with real estate landlords where they're talking about how do they make their streets relevant? They're realizing that the artists, the, the subcultures that made somewhere cool are relevant for it to remain cool. And it's not about just going and getting the big brands. Mm. Uh, and I think that could mean a real shift in gear in how we think going forward. So I'm, I'm optimistic. Good. Glad to hear it. That's really interesting stuff. Let's move on, Ross, to your three choices of living space, which look really, really good. Your first one is a house in the Cotswolds designed by the architect Richard Found, uh, which is a house we featured on the Modern House website before. Um, and it's an 18th century gamekeeper's cottage with a very large and very minimal extension to one side of it or both sides of it. Tell us why you've chosen it. Is it a house that you know well yourself? Yeah, Richard's a good friend of mine. I like him a lot. He's very cool and we've collaborated and worked together in the past. And, you know, I've gone to that house every year for the last three or four years and I love the juxtaposition between something that's so old and the cottage and then how the stone completely matches into this new modern extension, which is ridiculously minimal. And, and you've got this one space where the ceilings are vast and it's concrete and it's so open and glass. And then you've got this little cottage where everything's completely pokey and you've sort of got to duck your head. And <laughs> I love the drama of those two things sort of combined as one and yet how they 
perfectly flow. And, and I often think about, you know, whether it's business, different things you're doing, how do you take the old and the new and, and make them interconnect? And, and I, I love how he's done that from a design perspective. And then every year in November, we take the house for a week and our executives and sort of key people from the business that are leading decisions go there and we spend three or four days there. And, you know, and it's really an opportunity for us to sit a little bit higher and go, hang on a minute, what's the 20 year view? What's the free year view? What's the macro trends we thought were happening? Are they happening? Are we on the right path? Hmm. What's happening with commerce? Are we doing the right things? Is our product the right thing? What does 2020 look like? Believe me, what we wrote down is uh, turned out very different. <laughs> and what's great, actually, in a space like that, from the way it's designed, is there is nothing, right? I mean, it really is concrete white glass, you know, the main room with one sort of beautiful curved sofa. So when you're in that space, there's zero distraction and there's nothing changes in the space. So you were back to where you were a year ago or the year before or the year before that. And mm. what's amazing, going back to what we said about memories and how they're tied to physicality, is, you know, as if I said to you, you know, do you remember, I don't know, business trip in Vegas and the hotel you stayed in? Or you can sort of remember the room and everything about it. And then suddenly you can remember the conversations you've had. By going to the exact same space, the moment you walk through that door, I remember the conversations we had the year before as if it was yesterday. Right. Because I'm back in that environment. And I find that really powerful. Um, it's nice to be in a beautiful setting, but it's somewhere that inspires us. And it's somewhere that, yeah, Richard was very generous a few years back and we took it. And then we've taken it every year since because it's somewhere that we just found so valuable for the team. And and then we have beautiful big dinners there. And, and it really gives you an opportunity to just think without any clutter, in my view. So obviously you're going there for an away day and you're using that lack of visual clutter as a sort of canvas on which to project your ideas and for you guys to come together and think. Yeah. He's obviously used a lot of very hard, unforgiving materials there, like, you know, the Cotswold stone and the in-situ concrete and the glass. If you lived there, would you find it too cold and clinical or do you think that would work for you? Could you live that minimally? There's The, the cottage is very sort of eclectic and, and there's lots going on there. And the artwork throughout the house is beautiful. But I think that I love the architecture of it. I think I could live there. I think if it was me, I'd need to have like a, a lot of soft stuff in there as well. But the building and the, the place I, I think is beautiful. And I think for what it is, which is a place to retreat to mm. in the countryside, mm. it works for that purpose. And, it, and it's beautiful. And it's so dramatic. I mean, everyone I've ever taken there work-wise has honestly seen it as one of the best weekends or best weeks they've mm. ever had. Mm. Rich doesn't live there full time then, is that right? Is it, is it a weekend retreat, as it were? It? Yeah, from my understanding. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? Years ago now, I went to um, a John Pawson-designed apartment in Konoka, a place in Belgium, and that was similarly minimal. Uh, and what it made me realise, I think, was two things. Firstly, in the hands of a really good architect minimalist architecture is really all about the quality of the materials and the junctions and the way that things meet and actually I was so struck by just the sheer quality of the craftsmanship there and I think there are so many poor quality knockoffs aren't there no I think he's done it incredibly well and I'm one of those people that you know if I sit in a restaurant or a space I, I can't help but notice like the wiring or mm. I will notice that the plug in the corner is slightly crooked and yeah. you know it drives me mad 
and your brain gets distracted and looks at all the things that were wrong. <laughs> and with Richards, it's so minimal, but also it's such good quality that your brain can't get distracted. You are present. And in one sense, it's cold, but in another sense, it's it's incredibly relaxing, mm. especially if you've got a mind that sort of goes like that. Well, and of course, the other thing about a minimal space is that it puts all of the emphasis on the relation between the house and the landscape outside. Richard's house has, a, I think, a 23-metre-long continuous stretch of glazing running through it. Tell us about the view there. I mean, it's really all about that connection, isn't it? Well, when we're there doing the off-site, half the time the view is covered in paper um, <laughs> with all of our thoughts on it. Sacrilege. Yeah, exactly. But the house is completely different when you go. So if you go in the summer, it's just completely green, right? And, and then the actual inside of that room feels mm. different. If you go in November, you've got all the autumn colours and there's a lake and there's just trees and it's just beautiful. And then when I went in February, I mean, it was ice um, mm. and all the grass was white. And you're just like, this is a new space again. Yeah. So it's amazing, again, that the, the landscape completely changes. And it changes, actually, when you're there for a week on a daily basis. Like one day of it's beautiful sunshine and, and one day of it's grey the rooms feel different because of there is so much glazing. Um, and there's just a moment every morning when you wake up there, you know, every bed faces this huge window and the blinds open up automatically in the morning and you've just got this view. Whenever I'm there, I feel like I'm in a movie. <laughs> um, there's something very dramatic about it. There's music playing through the house and it's sort of, it's sort of like being in a horror movie. It's quite scary at points. <laughs> like I loved once that I took a... Um, one of the guys who was running our UK business was an ex-member of the US military. And watching him terrified at night that there could be someone hiding in a bush outside was quite amusing. Yeah, it, it takes a certain person to be able to stay there on their own. I think. That's really interesting what you said there, actually, because looking at the pictures, because I haven't been there, but it's probably the ideal landscape, I would say, for a human being to feel happy and comfortable in because the theory is that we evolved in the African savannah and that we tend to be attracted to environments that offer that same mix of prospect and refuse. So you've got prospect where you can see across those undulating fields to see any threats coming. And then you've got the copses of trees that you can hide behind if you need to. There's a lake there, isn't there? So that's an obvious water source for us. Um, so the, the, the theory is that a landscape like that is absolutely preconditioned to make us feel good and happy. Do you feel that sense of tranquility when you're there? Oh, 100%. I mean, that's completely how I feel. And because of probably all those things you've said, it allows your mind just to go to a place of pure focus. Um, it's beautiful. I think Rich has done an amazing job. OK, fab. Let's move on to your second choice then, which is very different, uh, which is the Bowery Hotel in New York. So yeah. tell us about this one and why you've chosen it. Well, so when I was in New York, I basically was staying there. There was a point where we were there half the month basically in New York, in the New York office before I you know, got a, a place with a friend out there and I would stay in the Bowery and it's in a way it's just completely opposite to Richard's, right? It's you walk in and it, the feeling is sort of old and, you know, the guys that actually designed it, designed it based on uh, The Shining, I think, in a horror film. How did they? <laughs> um, and, you know, you walk in, it's sort of like being in an old English manor house. You've got these huge fires You've got these massive, comfortable sofas. Um, it's all very sort of red drapes, fit carpet. 
and then the bedrooms um it's one of the highest buildings in the east village so every room's got these criddle windows where you see out across new york and, and the, the skyline when i'm at the barry it's like you're in this space that's like warm and cozy and and frankly just it's very english I mean, I hate to admit it, but when I go to New York, I find myself speaking with more of an English accent. I mean, I never drink tea. And in New York, in every meeting, I have tea. And like, <laughs> I live this sort of random Englishman stereotype. And somehow, you know, when I'm there at the Bowery, I feel at home. It's funny how places attract crowds as well. But the Bowery, the foyer is basically this open space where people chill if you're staying in the hotel or if you're a local and they know you well you you can go and hang out there it's always got an interesting crowd but i always find that it's always 50 60 percent of the people there are english okay and you know when you're in a city that's running at 100 miles per hour right there's nothing like new york when you drive over the brooklyn bridge from the airport you get like that sort of punch the gut that you're there and i love it but going there and you sort of go to this quiet place that's a bit fuddy-duddy and a bit boring and a bit slow it's a great, you know, juxtaposition to the rest of the city. And, and yeah, I, I love it. And, and I also just love where it is. I love that the East Village is a little bit grittier than the rest of Manhattan, other than if you're in Brooklyn. And I love that you cross the road and you're in Soho, which is where our office is there in New York. And yeah, I'm very fond of the Bowery. It's really helped to change that neighbourhood, hasn't it? The Bowery was traditionally a bit of a no-man's land, I think, wasn't it, before the hotel opened? Yeah, I mean, completely. And, and now that street actually has become a bit of a, a, an interesting retail street. You know, Supreme opened up on the street. So it's become an interesting retail destination, but much more a retail destination for locals, whereas the other store that someone might have in Soho is probably a little bit more tourist. Yeah. So what do you make of New York generally as a city? Do you feel comfortable there or do you feel more comfortable in London? I love New York. Yeah, I've been very fortunate that the last few years I got to spend about 50% of my time there. But if I'm there for longer than two weeks, I, 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 I hate it, actually. Mm. Um, but I love London and London to me just gets the best balance, especially from a social life perspective. It's a lot calmer. It's a lot more relaxed and it's a lot more uh, sort of considerate. I, I would always laugh in New York that so, you know, people's social lives are like their work days. So they'll be like, hey, I'm going for dinner, but I've got to head off at 10 because I've got this other thing. Right. Whereas if someone did that in London, <laughs> I mean, you couldn't even imagine it happening, right? Yeah. And it's probably also the, the way that the city's made up, you can do that. In mm. London, if you go to Hackney, you're not going to go to Peckham or you're not going to go to Chelsea or you're not going to go to Notting Hill, right? You, you, you mm. do one or the other. Mm. But... I do think we've got this balance as well at the weekends where London is a series of villages. Mm. New York, you know, yes, there's villages in terms of like the West Village got a slightly different crowd to the East Village and where you live, but it is all one area, right? Uh, and I think that means that life never pauses. Yeah. Um, and I sort of need that weekend to get inspired, you know, to work in my own space. And, and also just to have like, I, you know, if I'm in my house now, I can look outside, there's a park. There's trees everywhere. London's just got a lot of greenery. Mm. New York's just, you've got people basically living above you. Yeah. However, I also love it. I love the, the, the energy. But London, London's home. So with, with that relentless energy, a hotel obviously gives you that mixture of social and private spaces, doesn't it? Does it fulfil that need you might have when you're there to congregate and meet new people, but also disappear and be by yourself a little bit? Yeah, I think 100%. And the interesting thing with that place is you do see people in the lobby sat alone drinking, you know, a glass of wine or a cup of tea. And, and it, it seems just normal. It's not like it's too 
you know much of a crowd yeah but on the flip side there's there's interesting people to talk to but but i am a bit of a person that will sit in the corner on my own <laughs> unless it's my friends <laughs> and what's the food like there the, i mean Gemma next door you know was a great italian restaurant mm. but also you know there's so much good stuff nearby i mean so many great little places um we've got a team out there so every night normally has a client dinner or something like that so you're with people all day you've then got dinners that to me the moment i get back to the hotel it's more about bath time and bed or maybe reading something and basically being a six-year-old <laughs> okay so moving on then to your your third choice which is maybe where you're a six-year-old man more regularly it's your own home in stoke newington in north london tell us about this one yeah it's an old converted victorian school an old boys school and funnily enough very randomly it was one of the first spaces put on a pier here. So before the developer rebuilt it, it was put on as an event venue on our platform, which I didn't find out until I moved in. Um, so it's a very old building, but inside it's very modern and redone. And, and again, it's that sort of old and new. Mm. Um, personally, I love old stuff. So I love architecture that's old, but I like that, like what Richard's done. I like when you see those things intertwine with something that's much more contemporary. Um, and then in terms of the space, when I moved here, I, I felt very much like, you know, what would work for London? And it's a place really for me where I've got the office. It was really a place to come back to and retreat and feel calm and relaxed before the next day. And, and, and also a place where you can have friends and dinners and entertain. But there's lots of dark coloured walls and greys and stuff like that and, and very sort of plain. And then what I filled it with is things by, you know, independent makers and people that I really admire and, and like and, and a lot of people that are part of our community. So tell us about some of those things, those objects and the furniture in the space. Do you think it's important to live with things that have that personal meaning for you? Yeah, so there's stuff from the, the first print of the Queen's... Diamond Jubilee t-shirts behind me. And then there's like, you know, cool artists that use like um, Alex Coe and um, people like Patrick Church, who's a very cool designer in New York who we've done a lot of work with in the past. He, he's become an amazing success story in New York right now. And I've got some of his pieces. Okay. Is it something that you redecorated yourself or did you inherit that decor that you live with there? Luckily, when I got the house, because it had just been done by this developer, it, it was it was very ready to move in. But it was, you know, sort of like cream beige and every room was like, it felt very country. Mm. So for <laughs> me, it was about trying to make every space different. So downstairs, the moment you walk in, it's a kitchen lounge space and, and there's a big dining table. And, and that's sort of the main part of the house. And then the first floor... It's got a couple of rooms for guests. And I, I always wanted to have a, a house where people just felt like they could turn up. Mm. You know, I've got best friends that now live in L.A. or New York. And when they're in London, they stay here and they they use this as their base. And uh, and then the top floor mm. is mine where there's um, there's my bedroom. There's a small room that's a, a dressing room. And then there's a television room. And it was really about having having upstairs watch TV and trying to do that for myself so that, you know, if I work you know, it's a certain environment, it's not my bedroom, so that you feel like you can separate things. And I'm fortunate I live alone, so I can do that. But it, it allows you to, um, I think, keep things, keep things neat and orderly. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. 
And, and when your friend, when your friends all pile over there, then who who does the cooking? Is it you? I do it. Yeah, I've learned to cook. But, but yeah, have friends come round and cook that are good cooks. They'll do it. Especially Sunday roast, big Sunday roast. Everyone round at lunchtime. Few bowls of red wine. Mm. And and look, I was really lucky. This house, it's got a set of muse houses behind, and I I was trying to get the muse house, and I kept getting outbid, and I never even looked around this house because there's the main one. There's no chance I was going to be able to afford it, and then. The developer sold it four times, and every time they sold it, it kept falling through. Right. And I was literally on a flight to New York, and I made the silliest offer. And <laughs> and they were like trying to get rid of it, and they'd had all this bad luck. And the guy was literally he knew the company because he put the space on there, and he went, "I'll do it." And if it wasn't for that, there's no way I'd be living it. So it was. It's also good when you feel like probably the businessman side feels like you got a deal that was better than your neighbours. Yeah, it feels good, definitely. <laughs> and why, why did you choose Stoke Newington? You know, I lived in the East for like, I don't know, eight years or something, maybe a bit longer than that. And I was looking at everything. I didn't sort of rush. I kept looking at things every weekend over a series of months. And and this place was beautiful. And it was, and yeah, it's like I was born in the countryside and moved to London at 16. This feels like it's a country house from right. the outside. Yeah. Uh, and then it was sort of trying to get that balance right so it just felt like somewhere that was at home and it's it's right on the sort of edge of Stoke Newington so it's um sort of you've got like the Stoke Newington side and then you've got you also got Dalston and Hackney Marshes and everything as well so it feels like it's in the middle of me pretending to be a yeah, six-year-old man that can sort of walk down Church Street and um, where there's lots of prams and and babies and families or go down Dalston and, and be depending what mood <laughs> okay Ross, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. Really, really good to talk to you. Thank you. And um, I hope things go really well with the pier here. It's a fantastic business and um, fingers crossed for this next year or two. No, I appreciate it, Matt. Thank you. And, and look, for us, it's about trying to make sure that people in the community, all these amazing little independent stores, I think going back to what you asked me about the house, I think, you know, there's so much we can all buy and just consume. Yeah. And when you have something that you know someone made with their own hands that they cared about it makes anything just seem like it's so much more important and I think mm. for us it's about trying to make sure that our streets are filled with more people that are just passionate about what they're doing and and it's their their pride versus just about buying and us all consuming more stuff so yeah. I hope that changes over the next two years and, yeah. and that's something we're passionate about definitely here here see you soon thanks a lot Perfect. thank you cheers mate all the best If your interest has been piqued by the conversation with Ross today, you can find photos of the spaces we discussed on our website, themodernhouse.com. Richard Found's amazing house in the Cotswolds is particularly worth looking at if you haven't already seen it. As ever, we've got more great guests in the pipeline, so please subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The producer was Caroline Hughes, and the executive producer was Kate Taylor for Feast Collective. A big thank you to both of them and thanks to all of you for listening.